0: Good morning. good morning open your Bibles if you would to John chapter 4 John chapter 4 the New Testament Gospel of John and chapter 4 <clears throat> I read this week about a new GPS application that Microsoft has put out you know several people now have those those GPS devices in their car that tell you where to go and how to turn and it's making it so nobody knows how to read a map anymore but they would be handy i remember i was driving to southeast missouri one time it was fairly late at night and there's a section down there where you um soon after you cross over right where illinois and kentucky and missouri meet there's two bridges one that goes over the ohio one goes almost immediately then right over the mississippi river and it's out in the middle of nowhere and the only town that's nearby um i was unfamiliar with well because the Mississippi River was flooded, that particular bridge was closed, and so they were detouring everybody up into this town that looked as if it had seen better days, and I had no idea where I was going. But the person in front of me, I could see because it was nighttime, had one of those those GPS devices, I, I'm just going to follow that person, because they seem like they know where they're going, and sure enough, it took me to an interstate, which then got me across the river. These devices are are such that people don't know how to read maps anymore. And they're getting fairly complicated. Not only will they give you directions on how to drive someplace, but now they will give you directions on how to walk someplace. Microsoft now has a new one out, or a new feature on the software that drives their version of that application that will take you on walking directions through what it says are the safest neighborhoods. So it has been dubbed the avoid ghetto application. (laughs) The idea is that it takes into account crime statistics and various other statistics and then routes you around those areas. So it's become a fairly controversial thing. Is it a racist application? I was thinking that is a lot, though, how we live our lives, isn't it? We don't like to end up in uncomfortable situations. We want to make sure we're in control of where we're going, and we don't like to be detoured off of our comfortable path through life. We want to avoid the undesirable places in life. We want to avoid risk. We want to avoid pain. We want to avoid Suffering, we want to avoid anything which makes us feel kind of uncomfortable and as if we're not in control. I would consider, I would ask you to consider whether that's the best way to live your life, whether that's the most faithful way to follow after Christ. We don't like detours in life, do we? In John chapter 4, we see an encounter that Jesus has with a woman who is an outcast. He's not supposed to have this encounter with her. In John chapters 2 and 3, we saw how the glory of God, the mercy and glory of God was revealed in Jewish settings, in the countryside, and in Jerusalem. And in chapter 4, we see the grace and glory of God shown to a Samaritan. And, and next week, we'll see it as revealed to a, a Herodian. Let's begin reading in John chapter 4, verse 1. And therefore, the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. Although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. Jesus left Judea and departed again into Galilee. And verse 4 says he had to pass through Samaria. Well, that's not strictly true. He didn't have to pass geographically. He didn't have to go through Samaria. He could have gone around it. But he was led by the providence of God to go to a place where his people The Jewish people were not supposed to go. And so he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near a parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. And there came a woman of Samaria to draw water, Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman therefore said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink? Since I am a Samaritan, a Samaritan woman. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw the water with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. <laughs> Let's stop there for a moment. This passage is not, just like last week's passage, does not divide itself well, I don't think, into nice Neat, orderly, sermonic points that I can wrap up with a bow on top and give to you as a pretty sermon. So we'll just kind of walk through it. And I think what you do see here is in many ways a picture of how the gospel comes to people. You see in this a picture of Jesus going to the outcast. You see the response of that person. And we'll see more as we go throughout the passage. But back up and look at... Verse 4 again, he had to pass through Samaria, and so he came to a city of Samaria, to a parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, being wearied from his journey, sat by the well. And there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. The Samaritans and the Jews did not get along. If Jesus had had a GPS application that gave him walking directions out of Judea and again into Galilee, it probably would have routed him around Samaria. Instead of calling it the ghetto app, they would have called it the Samaria app. This is not the preferred direction that he or others would have been advised to go. Ever since... Was it Second Kings? Yeah, Second Kings 17 tells a story of why those in Samaria are so different from the Jews around them. When the Assyrians came in back in the day and conquered the land there in Samaria, it, they took most of the people out, most of the Jews out, and deported them. This is sort of a common thing that that kingdoms would do. You conquer a new land, you take the people in that land, and you remove them. And you move them over here to some place. And you take those people and you move them over here to some place. Because people are less likely to rebel. They're more easy to control if you displace them. So the king of Assyria, when he came in and besieged Samaria, took the majority of the residents there and deported them and brought in people from other places. And these people brought in their false gods. And they brought in their false worship. And they brought in their idols. And they intermarried. Then when the Jews came back from captivity, the Babylonian captivity, wanted to rebuild the temple, the Samaritans then offered to help. But the Jews said, no, we don't want your help in this. Because you've defiled the worship of God. And so ever since then, there's been this, 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 this breach, this divorce between them about 20 years before the ministry of Jesus, some of the Samaritans went into the temple in Jerusalem and scattered human bones around the temple grounds just to defile the place. And so ever since the, they were un, they were not allowed to help rebuild the temple, they went over to Mount Gerizim and built their own temple. So they, 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 built, they had their own place to worship, and they were different. They, they didn't even recognize the same prophets as the Jews. In fact, the Samaritans only recognized the first five books of the Bible the pentateuch the books of moses so all that tradition of the prophets that came after the samaritans don't don't accept that didn't accept that so the last prophet that they revered was moses and the next prophet that they looked forward to was one who would come like unto moses the promised messiah So Jesus passes through Samaria. He goes on a detour. It was not geographically necessary for him to do this on the way. He was detoured. Detours are great opportunities for divine appointments. The question then obviously before us is, are we willing to detour from what is expected? Are we willing to detour from what is expedient or what is efficient for us? From what we find comfortable. She goes Jesus sits down by the well because he's tired. And the Samaritan woman walks up. She has three things going against her here. First, she's a Samaritan. She's a Samaritan. She would not have expected a Jew to speak with her. First, because she's a Samaritan, but then secondly, because she's a woman. The rabbinic traditions here were such that that men shouldn't really even speak to women in general, in public. Some of the rabbis even specifically encouraged men not to talk to their wives too much, in private even. So you have this really strange tradition of, of men and women being so divided. So she's a Samaritan, she's a woman, and as we'll see in a bit, she has a bit of a checkered past. Jesus is tired and he's sitting there next to the well. And this woman comes up and he says to her, give me a drink in verse 7. His disciples were not there because they had gone into the city to buy food, which itself is significant. The Samaritan woman says to him, excuse me? (laughs) How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan? And then she says, a Samaritan woman. She's saying, you're not really minding your place very well, are you, sir? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, she says. I think if you read between the lines there, she's saying, you can't drink after me. The Jewish water fountain's over here. The Samaritan water fountain's over here. Well, the question I have is if Jews are to have no dealings with Samaritans, why did the disciples go into town to buy food? The disciples don't quite completely understand everything that Jesus is doing and what he's about. But they know enough now to just not ask questions anymore when he says, go do something. You'll see when they come and they find him there talking to this woman, (laughs) John specifically says, they didn't ask him, what are you doing? Although evidently they were thinking it. Jesus must have sent them into town, into a town in Samaria to buy food, to have dealings with them. Jesus is even more scandalous and as approaches this woman, or she comes up and he initiates a conversation with her. Do you see where I'm going with this? God detours Jesus to an unlikely place. Jesus is exhausted. He is sitting on the ground, probably... Taking, wanting a nap, and the guy's tired. And up comes one that he's not supposed to talk to. He's tired, he's in an uncomfortable place, and yet he approaches her. He initiates the conversation. And the same is true for us. As we go through this, the temptation is for us to look at this and see Jesus' example and to apply Jesus' example to ourselves. Yes, we are to go to the undesirable. We are to take the gospel to those that are not like us. We're to take the gospel to those that society says you really shouldn't have much to do with. But I would encourage you, instead of looking just at this passage like that, Realize that you are the Samaritan here. The only reason that you can claim to be in Christ because you are outcast and separated from God is because Christ initiated it with you. Your heart should leap when I say that. And if it doesn't, you know, there was a... Did I ever tell you about Dallas Vincent? Dallas Vincent was pastor of Ormsby Heights Baptist Church here in Louisville for 39 years. Now, I asked him, why didn't you just hang on for another six months? and it'd be an even 40, but he 39 years and he retired. He used to say, if that doesn't ring your bell, there's something wrong with your clangor. <laughs> that does not, that's just free. Let take that. How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered and said to her, Oh, if you only knew, if you only knew the gift of God and who it is who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus said to him, She said to Jesus, you, you have nothing to draw with, sir, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob are. you?" She's saying, who do you think you are? You think you have water to give that's better than Are you better than us? Are you so much superior than us as a Jew that you refuse to drink from this well? This is Jacob's well. This is the well of our patriarchs. It was good enough for him. How is it not good enough for you? And Jesus says to her in verse 13, if you drink this, you're just going to get thirsty again. This is just plain old water. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him, never thirst. Never thirst. The water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. He says, this water that you drink from the well, you're just going to get thirsty again, but I can give you something that you can take with you, and it will be a never-ending source of bubbling water within you. Of living water. He's talking about eternal life. She evidently thinks he's talking about plumbing. Plumbing. just doesn't get it woman said to him sir give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw she's I think this is my interpretation I think she's kind of humoring him you know sir okay fine let me have some of this water primarily so that I won't have to come all the way down here to this well to get more every time I'm thirsty I see two things in that. This is a very hot time of day that she's coming to the well. You realize that. This is not the time you would typically come to the well. If you lived in a hot, dry place, wouldn't you go to the well at the coolest time of day? She's out there at the warmest time of day. She's out there when no one else is going to be there. She's trying to avoid her neighbor's She's trying to avoid others in the area who heap shame upon her for reasons that we'll see in a minute. But then the second thing I see in that is that her main concern in verse 15 and hearing Jesus, her main concern in what Jesus has to offer is one of convenience. It's one of convenience. Give me this water that you're talking about just so I don't have to go to the effort to come down here and get it anymore. She's there at a time of day that it's in so that she won't be seen. She won't have to deal with the neighbors. She's saying, give me something that'll save me from my shame, but do it in a way that's just convenient for me we know what he thinks about people who approach God out of convenience. John chapter 2. You remember what he did when he went to the temple? And he saw the court of the Gentiles filled with people buying and selling in such a way that was not to enable the worship of those coming, but it was sort of a little temple economy to their own benefit. It was for their own convenience. And Jesus lost it. Well, he didn't, Jesus never lost it. Jesus became upset at their convenience. The Samaritans were seen by Jews as religious apostates, sort of a spiritual germs kind of a thing. If I associate with you, it will defile me. Jesus breaks that. Jesus breaks that, and he goes to her where she is. He goes to her in her shame. And he initiates the conversation. She had some measure of spiritual eyesight, though, didn't she? She knew enough to be looking forward to a Messiah. Let's keep reading. After verse 15, when she says to him, Give me this water so I will not be thirsty anymore and I'll come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go get your husband and come back. The woman answered and said, I don't have a husband. And Jesus said, you are right. (laughs) You have said that correctly. I have no husband. For you've had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. You're right about that. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. I've read a lot. On this passage in the past week. Some see this as her beginning to come to Christ in faith. Because remember, the Samaritans didn't recognize any prophets after Moses. You have Moses, and the next is Messiah. If she recognizes him as a prophet, she's recognizing him as Messiah. I think she's being a bit facetious here. I think she's speaking to him in his own vocabulary. You're a Jew, you know a lot, you must be a prophet. And then she changes the subject. So you have Jesus who comes to her, begins to stir up within her desires for deliverance from her condition. Points out to her that he knows her heart. He knows her past. He knows her secrets. He knows her sin. He knows her failures. she admits it she says you're right you must be a prophet whatever she means by the prophet part she did admit to the sin she said you're right about who I am but it's so uncomfortable for her what does she do she changes the subject as soon as possible (laughs) You have this man who comes and begins to speak of deep things. Points out her sin. She says, yes, I've sinned, basically. But then she immediately says in verse 20, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, Mount Gerizim. and You people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. She changes the subject away from her failure, away from her sin, away from her shame, and turns it to doctrinal differences. She goes from her personal guilt to the- not theoretical, but doctrinal confusion. I don't know about you, but that's me. At this point, I am the Samaritan man. I don't like to dwell on my sin. I don't like to dwell on my failure. I'd much rather ponder the finer points of theology. And here at this point, Jesus usually, I would expect him anyway, to return back to the main question. To return back to the... What I would have done is taken her back to to the point of her sin, to show her her need for a savior. Jesus doesn't do that. Look what he does. He said to her in verse 21, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. you worship that which you do not know. we worship that which we know for salvation is from the Jews. It says this point that you're making is neither here nor there. it doesn't in the long run in the eternal scheme of things, it doesn't matter whether the appropriate worship of God is on Mount Gerizim or in Jerusalem because the time will come when the appropriate worship of God is not located in a place but in hearts. But he doesn't belittle the truth of the doctrinal difference. He says in verse 22, you worship that which you don't know, we worship that which we do know. For salvation, literally in Greek, it's the salvation is from the Jews. He's talking about himself there. But an hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. What does he mean by that? In spirit and in truth. Some would say that worshiping in spirit refers to the heart, worshiping sincerely, worshiping with the inner being. He's pointing her away from the rituals of worship, of Mount Gerizim or of offering sacrifice or of the things that you do in service of God and worship and saying that worship will come, there will become in me something which is sincere and from the heart, from the inner being. I would argue and say that's always been the case. God never wanted sacrifices from insincere people. He could be saying that real worship of God is in spirit because God is spirit. He says in verse 24 that God is spirit. But we see in chapter 6, verse 63, Jesus says his words are spirit and truth. By worshiping in truth, it could mean that we're to worship without hypocrisy, without falseness, without deception. It could mean that we're to worship in truth because Jesus explains everything, as we see in verse 25 and 26. But in chapter 14, verse 6, we see that Jesus himself is the truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. So worshiping in spirit and truth is related to the character of God. It's related to the identity of Jesus. It's worshiping God in union with Christ. Worshiping a God who is spirit according to the revelation of the Son. So it's saying that there's coming a time when these matters of location... Jerusalem versus Mount Gerizim are not going to be significant anymore because you're going to be worshipping God in me. I am the truth. And by being united to me, worshipping God according to my words. This all went right over her head as it still does for me sometimes. Verse 25, the woman said to him, Well, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ, and when that one comes, he will explain all this to us. He will make sense of it. She's saying, I don't understand what you're talking about. You're not making sense to me, but there's one coming who will explain it all. And at this point, the disciples walked up, They marveled that he had been speaking with a woman, and yet no one said, What are you doing? Why do you speak with her? And so the woman left her water pot. Why? What happened? What happened between the point when Jesus says, or when she says that the Messiah will come and explain it, And when the disciples walk up, did you read verse 26? Do you see what comes in between? She goes from saying, well, I don't know what you're saying. You're some sort of knowledgeable person, that's clear. I don't quite understand what you're saying. But the Messiah will come and someday explain it to us. She goes from that, almost immediately, to getting up and running home. And she'd gone to the well to draw water. And she, she even left her water pot there. Something happened to completely change her frame of mind. And this isn't just the same kind of thing where if I set my sandwich down to pick up my coffee, I'm, as I'm walking out the door on the way to work, I forget my sandwich. You know, I'm always putting stuff down in the wrong place. I find stuff, I put, I'm just so absent-minded. That's not the case here. She doesn't just forget her water pot. Something happened to take her from the point where she says, the Messiah is coming and will explain to me what you're saying. Two, I need to go talk to someone. What was it? Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you, I am. Now, if you're only scriptures for the first five books of the Bible, you would certainly know Exodus 3.14. Exodus chapter three. You have God telling Moses, remember this, to go to the Pharaoh, say, so Let my people go? And Moses says, Well, who shall I say is sending me? And God says, Tell them, I am. He kind of names himself there. And when Jesus responds to her, when she says that the Messiah will one day come and explain all this to us, he says to her, I who speak to you, I am. He's not just saying, I'm that Messiah that you're talking about. He identifies himself with God. I think if he were just to have said, I am that Messiah, that's me. If he were just said, that's me. The conversation probably would have kept going. I don't know. Maybe not. I think it probably would have. Maybe she'd have said, you're crazy. But he goes a step beyond that and says, that's me. And by the way. I'm God. And at that point, the disciples walk up. She leaves her water pot and she runs home. She goes into the city and she says to the men of the city, Come, see a man who told me all things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? So they went out of the city and they were coming to him. And we're not going to read verse 31 through verse 38, but let me just say that in those verses, the disciples are telling Jesus, you know, you really should eat something here. You really should eat something. There's a parallel here of what's going on. You have Jesus at the well with the woman. Where are the disciples at that time? He'd sent them into the city. They come back with a few loaves of bread. After his encounter with the Samaritan woman, she goes into the city. And what does she come back with? Look at verse 39. And from that city of the Samaritans, many from that city of in this believed in him because of the woman. Let's start that verse over again, shall we? Verse 39. And from that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all things that I have done. So when the, the Samaritans came to him, they were asking him to stay with them. He sends the disciples into the city and they come back with food. The Samaritan woman, after her encounter with Jesus, goes into the city and comes back with people. I think here you have an evidence of a genuine faith on her part now. She's coming kind of like Nathaniel. From earlier in John. She's bringing people. She's bringing people. So many believed they were asking Jesus to stay with them. And so he stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of his word. And then verse 42, they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. So we've walked through the verses now. Do you see yourself in that? You have Jesus coming to her. Jesus initiates it, he meets her in the course of her life. She admits her sin, she admits her expectation and need for a Savior. To which Jesus responds by revealing the truth about himself. And her response to that is faith and witness. Do you see the pattern? I think that's probably true for most of us, isn't it? Had you, would you have come to Christ if Christ had not come to you first? No. Is your faith in Christ because of a detour that somebody made? Probably. In your coming to Christ, were you recognizing your need for a Savior? Yeah. Jesus revealed himself, and her response was one of faith and witness. I I don't know that she completely understood when she left Jesus, because if she completely understood, she wouldn't have left Jesus. Right? If your Savior... Was face-to-face with you alone? Would you get up and (laughs) go tell your friends first? She comes back with people. She comes back with people. So the application of this is, yes, be willing to go to the Samaritans. Be willing to be detoured. Don't live your life on a ghetto app. Let God lead you to places where you are uncomfortable. Take the gospel to those who need to hear it. But even more than that, realize that you are that Samaritan. This passage is not about the Samaritan woman. This passage is about Jesus and who he is. One of my pet peeves is the way editors at publishers, Bible publishers, will will put headings on what each passage of Scripture is about. And so often I think they miss the point. It's not the parable of the sower. It's the parable of the soils. And here this 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 isn't this passage isn't about the Samaritan woman. This passage is about who Jesus is and how he comes to people. We're about to move as a church, Lord willing, perhaps, possibly, we'll see, to a new space. It's kind of a scary thing. Who will come? How will these new people affect us? What will they think of us? What will we do if we move out of the comfort of the basement? We take a detour through an area we perhaps would not have thought to go. An office building? What will we do if the people who come are not like us? What will we do if they have backgrounds and pasts that make us uncomfortable? What do we do if we're not like Jesus and just don't know what to say? Jesus answers that question for us in the coming chapters, which will actually be a different sermon series at some point. The Gospel of John has three very important passages on the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. And one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to bring back to mind the words of Christ. Friends, God does not call us to know the answers. God does not call us to, to devise the perfect strategy for reaching people, to have the perfect gospel presentation. He wants for us just to be faithful today. You can do nothing about tomorrow. You can only be faithful today. And when you find yourself worshiping in an office building or ministering to those around that neighborhood, All you need to do is be faithful in pointing them to Christ. It is not you who saves. It is Christ who saves. This passage is not about the Samaritan woman. This passage is not about her ability to come to Christ. This is not about her astounding spiritual insight. Because if anything, it's the entire lack thereof. Everything Jesus said just completely went over her head. She did not understand what he was saying. In fact, the end of it, he just says, she says, well, someone's coming They'll tell us about it. So finally, Jesus comes out right out and says, okay, all right, fine, I'm God. (laughs) I am your Savior. What does she do? She goes back to her city and points people to him. She's of no remarkable insight. She's theologically confused, but she knows Jesus. So friends, if we find ourselves in a new space with new people coming, it's okay to be uncomfortable. It's okay to be on a detour. Because all we need to do is be faithful to where God would have us to walk. And it's he who saves, not us. So as you view this passage, yes, see the example of Christ. But more than anything, I want you to see that you are the Samaritan here. If not for the initiation of Christ in your life, you would still remain estranged from God. And in Christ, you now have an ever flowing stream of living water residing within you in the Holy Spirit. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that our Christ is greater than the patriarchs, that he is the fulfillment of tradition, that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, that he is the purpose, he is the pinnacle. We praise you that you have seen fit to open our eyes to him. We see, Lord, in this passage that Jesus was willing to be inconvenienced in coming to her. But at least at first, she was unwilling to be inconvenienced in coming to him. Lord, may that never be true for us again. We thank you for the extent to which you have gone to bring us to faith in Christ, to give us new life. We thank you for the faithfulness of our Savior and the life that he lived and the death that he died. And we thank you that our Savior is risen again. So may our shame because of our sin be overshadowed by the glories of our Christ. Remind us, Lord, that even our own testimony and how Jesus has saved us is not about us, but even our own testimony is about Christ. The message of this church is not about our church, but is about Christ. And so as we stand on the edge of a decision of wondering whether or not to be detoured or where to go, we pray, God, that you would give us wisdom and faithfulness. For we are not about making ourselves into who we would like to be as a church. But we are your church, Lord, and we are about Christ. Take us to where the most people can see the glories of Christ in our midst. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.